are in Mark chapter 14. We've been working through this chapter and uh, just a, a couple of chapters left after this and we're going to be done with the gospel of Mark. This is our 56th week in this gospel and we're at a really, really special moment as I mentioned in the prayer. This sermon, I think, is a great sermon for the Christian skeptic, for the Christian doubter, for those of you who in your faith maybe you worry about your endurance. Maybe you worry you're the type of believer that you struggle with so much skepticism and, and doubt when it comes to your own authenticity, your own genuineness. You think, am I going to be a Christian a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? I'm just not sure how much I even believe. And, and, and you go through big ups and downs and, and you feel very insecure when it comes to your faith, like, like that skepticism and that doubt that you deal with is often uh, targeted on yourself, right? And you think, man, I, I don't, I'm not sure I'm winning the battle of good and evil inside my own mind and with my own life, and I just worry that I'm not even going to be a Christian 10 years down the road from right now. This moment in Scripture is important for you. If that is you, and I think all of us deal with that to some degree, um, I know I do, this moment in scripture has so many lessons for you, probably more than what I can mine and, and present in this sermon today. A lot of remedies here that will minister to you because we're, we're, we're going to study two paragraphs here in chapter 14, and we're going to examine the faithfulness of the disciples, and then we're going to examine the faithfulness of Jesus, and all of that examination is an opportunity for you and I to reflect on our own faith and what faithfulness is to look like in our own lives. How is this faithfulness that we cling to and sometimes feel like we're losing our grasp on, how does that faithfulness play out in your life? How does it function? How is it supposed to function? Today's an opportunity to evaluate those things and I think this can be of great encouragement to you today. So let's think about where we left off so we, that we can get our heads in this moment that we're gonna study. We're, we're gonna take verses 26 through 42 today. And where we left off is that Jesus was having this Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus was in Jerusalem with the disciples to celebrate Passover. And one of the main things you do when you come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover is to have the Passover meal. This very predictable, traditional meal that you would eat once a year as a Jew to remember the Passover on that 10th plague back when the Israelites escaped slavery from the Egyptians and when God redeemed them there. And so Jesus wanted to have this moment with the disciples before the cross where he could have this Passover meal. He was washing their feet. He has a tremendous amount of teaching that he relays to them in this moment. I challenged you last week, if you wanted a homework text, read John chapter 13 through 16 or 14 through 16 is, is the teaching that Jesus had for his disciples in that moment. He had a lot to say, way more than what Mark actually presents to us in his gospel. But towards the latter part of this Passover meal, where every item on the table had specific meaning, Jesus did something way out of the ordinary, something uh, completely out of the blue to a lot of people who were sitting there eating this Passover meal. He took bread and he assigned new meaning to that bread. He said, this is my body. So he broke the bread, he passed it around and said, this is my body. And then he took wine. Now remember, 
Every item on the table had specific meaning and a specific order in which you consumed it, but he, he went out of order and he was adding things to this moment. After he did that with the bread, he took the wine and he passed it out and he, and, and he said, drink it, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for meaning, meaning or I'm sorry, for many. So he applied new meaning to that wine. And so we participate. Again, that was kind of the, 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 the end of the sermon last week. We talked about how we participate in that moment every single Sunday that we gather. We're going to do that today. When we get done with the sermon, we're going to have a time of communion, and we're going to participate in that moment that inaugurated this new kingdom that Jesus is the king of. But now, another component that's taking place during all of that that we studied last week, we have Judas who is actively seeking an opportunity at this point in time to betray Jesus. The disciples have no clue that Judas is going to betray Jesus. No one there would have ever suspected him. No one knows that's what's going on except Judas and Jesus. Jesus can see right through Judas, and he gives him every opportunity to repent and confess in that moment. That's why after he washes all of the disciples' feet, he says, one of you isn't clean. That's why during the, the meal, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And he gets more specific than that. One of the 12, because there's likely more than the 12 in the upper room having the Last Supper with them. But he says, one of the 12. He gets more specific than that. One of you sitting here eating bread with me. One of you who's dipping their bread in this Horoseth sauce with us as we're having the Passover meal. One whom I, I'm going to give this bread to. And so Jesus is giving Judas every opportunity to come clean, to admit it. But then there comes a point in this meal in which Jesus realizes, you know what, Judas is not going to confess. He's not going to repent. He, it, John even gives us, gives us this detail that there's this moment in which Satan enters the heart of Judas. And it was after that point that Jesus looks to Judas and he just says, hey, what you're going to do, just go do it quickly. Just, just get out of here and go do it. And so that's where we're picking up on that moment. The Passover meal has ended. Judas has left. We know where he's headed. And Jesus is going to have this last moment with his disciples. He's going to head to the Mount of Olives, and he's going to end up at the, at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's going to have that prayer, that famous prayer in the garden. So on the way there, is what we're going to study first, this first paragraph. On the way there, Jesus, the, the dropper of truth bombs, is about to drop another truth bomb, and it's a, a huge explosion here. So read, read with, along with me as I read uh, 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter will be scattered. But after I, ra I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though th they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said empathetically, or emphatically, if, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Can you imagine everything that the disciples had been through with Jesus up to that point? Three years of ministry, three years of witnessing miracles, three years of participating in miracles, listening to teaching. They 
were sold out when it came to Jesus. This was a way of life for them. And after this very intimate, yet somewhat confusing moment at the Passover meal on the way to to the Mount of Olives, after hearing, one of you will betray me, it's not, is it I? It's not, surely it's not me. After hearing, it's going to be one of the 12. No, it can't be one of the 12. No, it's definitely not me. He adds to this on the way to the Mount of Olives, hey, by the way, you are all going to fall away. You're, you're all going to fall away. Can you imagine hearing that? How that would land on your ears? We're all going to, not just one of you, is, one of you is going to betray me, but you're all going to fall away. The, the circumstances are going to create this pressure, and you're not going to be able to take it. You're going to abandon me. You're all going to take off. What a shocking thing to hear. What a shocking thing to even say. You know, we think about, I think this moment in Scripture is a great opportunity to make sense of and empathize with the humanity of Jesus. It's important to see how Jesus is conveying this truth because he's not panicked, but he's obviously stressed. I mean, he's incredibly stressed in this moment. He, he's, he's got this big moment ahead of him. He's being betrayed by one of his most trusted friends. He knows what's coming, but he's not panicked. He's making it a point to say, for it is written. He's making it a point to express how he is resting in the sovereignty of God. Nothing is out of the control of the Father. Everything is going according to his plan. No matter how much we understand it or not, we know to trust in God because he always has all the facts. And Jesus applies this Old Testament messianic prophecy once again to himself. Now, this moment that he quotes from the Old Testament, if you caught it there, It's from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. So your homework text today, if you want to have a good passage of Scripture to to contemplate later on, go turn back to Zechariah chapter 13 just so you can understand and get a better hold of the context of this one verse that he quotes from Zechariah Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. He says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. This is God speaking to his people through the prophet Zechariah. I, that's God saying, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep, his people, will scatter. Now if you go back and read the context, some of what you'll find, and we don't have time to cover all of that today, but you see this moment in which Zechariah is prophesying. God is is frustrated with his people because of idol worship, which that's a pretty common theme throughout the Old Testament. And so their sin is frustrating God. His wrath is building towards them because of their sin. It's mounting up. And so he's saying, the way I am going to deal with your sin, because you're so sinful, I'm going to strike the shepherd and you all are going to scatter. In other words, I'm going to strike your leader down. I, God, am going to strike your leader, my leader, down. And my people are going to scatter. Can you, can you hear the sovereignty in that? I'm in control of this scattering. I'm in control of this striking. So Jesus is saying that, that prophet, Zechariah, was ultimately speaking of me. And he was he was. He was all along ultimately talking about this moment, 
this moment in which Jesus is so stressed, this moment in which the disciples are so stressed and confused, how is this happening, what's going on? Jesus is conveying to them, God has orchestrated all of this because God ordains all things. He is going to strike down his shepherd and you are going to scatter. You, the sheep, are going to scatter. And God is sovereign over all of it. You know, believing in the sovereignty, articulating the sovereignty of God and believing the sovereignty of God are two different things, right? And so sometimes we think uh, because we know and believe in the sovereignty of God, we're going to be immune to stress and things like that. But we see that's not the case. Jesus is very stressed, but he's not panicked. He still trusts in this very stressful moment. He's still trusting in the Lord and finding peace and finding security in the fact that God is sovereign over all of these things. And so this this wrath that comes down on him, that's why they're all going to fall away. They're going to abandon their rabbi. They're going to abandon their Messiah. But listen to the hope that Jesus gives them. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There's a but. I'm going to go before you to Galilee after I'm raised up. Did they even hear that part of it? Did they even hear that part of it? I, I, I just wonder, like, if they were, they, they just, they heard the first part, you're all going to fall away, and they, they just became deaf at, after that moment. What do you mean we're all going to fall away? What do you mean it is written? What do you mean, Zechariah chapter 13, what's going on here? They didn't even hear this part, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee such an important lesson to learn, isn't it? Like, their falling away doesn't have the last word. What a relief that is. Their falling away doesn't have the last word despite their abandonment of their Messiah. Their their Messiah does not abandon them. He's not done with them. I'll see you in Galilee. After you bail on me, after you abandon me, after you deny me, I'll see you in Galilee. When you get there, I'll be waiting on you. You're going to scatter. You're going to run away. And when you get there, I'll be waiting on you to shepherd you. What a joy that is to learn. What a relief that should be to our hearts. Like, I wonder how many people have that story in this room. So many of you have been Christians for so long, and you have a story just like this. At some season in your life, you were just bailing on the whole Christian thing. You're, you bailed on the church, you're out, I'm done. Whatever it may be, maybe you were hurt in the church, maybe something happened to you. The, the, I mean, the, the, the circumstances are endless, right? But maybe you had this season in which you just ran as far away from God and abandoned the faith, you abandoned your, your king, your Messiah, and, and when you finally ended up at your destination, there he was waiting on you in the pit. You'd reached the lowest point in your life, and there Jesus was waiting on you. Oh, you're here. Let's get back to the flock now. And you have this testimony in which the worst moment of your life actually became this like saving moment in your life. I've heard that. I've heard that testimony so many times I've lost count. That it's the worst point in your life that Jesus got a hold of your heart and brought you back to the flock. Because as he preaches, he'll go after the one. He'll, He'll leave the flock and go after the one and bring that one back to the flock. He's the good shepherd. Jesus never bails on us. We have to like beat that truth into our head. We bail on him all the time. We're so prone to wonder as we sing. And he comes and he gets us. He's too good of a shepherd to lose any of his, any of his sheep. And so if you are truly of the household of God, if you're truly a part of this kingdom, 
he will ensure you will always be a part of this kingdom. You can't run away far enough. He will find you there, and he will bring you back to the flock. And what a joy, what a joy that is. That's so important if you want to have true confidence in your assurance. Like when it comes to your faith and how it functions in your life, what is your faith in? When you, when you think about faithfulness and what it means to you and how it should play out in your day-to-day life, what, does that, what is that faith rooted in? Is it rooted in your faithfulness? I think that's the biggest mistake Christians make today. They start to think, oh man, am I going to hang on? Oh, am I going to be a Christian five years from now? Oh, is this really me or, or not? Or what am I going to do? We start to think about our ability to faith. Have I faithed far enough? Will I quit faithing at some point? If that's the object of your faith, you are the object of your faith. And that's why you feel insecure. That's why you don't have assurance or you struggle to have assurance. What you should be thinking about is Jesus, the object of your faith. When you get insecure, what do you think about? Do you do what Jesus did when he's feeling stressed? I'm going to go back to the word of God and I'm going to fall back on what I know. I know Zechariah chapter 13, 7. Well, that's, a, that's an example of what you and I should do when we're incredibly stressed, when we're feeling insecure. We need to fall back on what we know. The gospel is true. The word of God is for me in my life, and it equips me to get through this. That's what faith is like. The gospel, I want to think about Jesus. That's how we are to gain confidence. If we think about ourselves and our performance when it comes to faithfulness, we're going to fall away in a hurry. We're going to feel terrible. This is going to feel like a bad experience, a fragile experience. But when we think about Jesus, it's going to feel rock solid because that's the gospel. But if you insist, if you absolutely insist on saying, yeah, okay, yes, Jesus, but, but I still got to do this. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, but I still have to think this. Yeah, yes, Jesus, but I, if, if there's a but I, but I, but I, when you think about your faithfulness, if you insist on thinking that way, consider Peter in this moment. Look at what, look what he says to, to Jesus when he questions their faithfulness. You're all going to fall away. It's written this way. Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. This is priceless Peter. In one sentence, he manages to build himself up and throw everybody else under the bus. I can see why you think that about these idiots, but I'm not going to fall away. Yeah, I can see why you think that about Bartholomew. What do we even know about that guy, right? But I'm Peter. I'm not going to fall away. I'm the guy that got out of the boat and walked on water with you, Jesus. Like, I'm, I am not, there is no way, how dare you? That's kind of the posture of Peter at this moment. Like, no way this is going to happen. I mean, that, that overconfident faith, that self-inflated view that Peter has of himself it's outrageous, and he justifies it, you know, by comparing himself to everybody around him. Oh, I know my faithfulness is awesome because of these guys. Like, it, they can all fall away, but I'm not. Is that, is that how you think? Is that what goes through your mind? I, see, I think that way of thinking is actually more familiar than what we'd like to admit. I think a lot of times when someone falls away in Christianity, there's a little voice in the back of our heads that say things like this. Ah, uh, yeah, I called that one. Oh, they went off the rails? Yeah, I figured that would happen to them. 
Oh, they're oh, okay. Yeah, they're running away from Jesus. Yeah, that makes sense. That that uh, you know, they, all the signs were there. And and we when we say things like that, sometimes we even hear things like that within a community of of Christ. When someone falls away, we hear whispers like that. And what we're really saying when we think those things are, boy, I'm sure I, I'm sure glad I'm not like them. I'm sure glad I'm not like them, God. But listen, like when someone falls away in their faith. If somehow, some way, that boosts your confidence that, well, that makes sense that they would fall away, but you're definitely not going to fall away. If that's how your mind is working, oh man, that's a really bad place to be. Like if you have any spiritual awareness whatsoever, when someone falls away from the faith, that should be a warning sign to you to check yourself, examine your own life. If that happened to them, and I know I'm not immune to it, if they fell away like that, I know I'm capable of it. Those are opportunities for you and I, when someone falls away from the faith, to look at our own lives and be like, oh, Lord, where are any of those signs like that in my life that I could see them and that I could confess them and I could repent? Like, re Remember, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. That's what it says in Proverbs. And that's exactly how it plays out in Peter's life, isn't it? How's that, where, where does that self-confidence get Peter? Where does that self-inflated view get Peter. Despite how emphatically it says that he objected to Jesus, it's misplaced confidence. It's not really faithfulness. It looks like it, but it's not. It's a recipe for disaster. We see that over and over in the Bible. Like, this is what really draws me to the Word of God. Um, just the, the grace of God that we read about in the Bible. It's just incredible. Like, his people disobey him. He keeps loving them. God's people... They reject him, they worship other things, they deny him, but yet he accepts them, he never quits on them, he provides for them in the midst of it, he shows them patience. Like God is just infinitely gracious all the time and so forgiving and he knows that you and I are going to fail even before we do and, and he puts provisions in place before we even fail to ensure that we will come back to him. Like that's the message of the Bible. He does this for his people over and over and over. We see it in big ways. We see it in small ways. We definitely see that in the life of Peter because, again, when we read that confident objection to Jesus by Peter, we think, wow, how noble. Boy, that's how I would respond, right? I'm not going to fall away. Even if every single person in this church fails and falls away from Christianity, I'm not going to fail, Lord. Do we think that way? That is not faith. That's not how faith is supposed to play out. That's misplaced confidence. That's, that's confidence rooted in self. And when we have confidence as, as a Christian, if it's real confidence, it's rooted in Jesus. That's what faithfulness is. It's rooted in the works of Christ alone. You want to see a picture of faithfulness, what it really is? Let's read this next paragraph together. Let's just take verses 32 through 36. This is, this is what real faithfulness looks like. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to great, be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Now, earlier we saw they were headed to the Mount of Olives. So this was just outside of, of the, the city walls there in Jerusalem. They're at a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. So Gethsemane, they're, they're Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives obviously was covered in olive trees, uh, trees, and Gethsemane means olive press. And so this is likely where they brought the olives to press them, right? It's an, an oil press. And so there they are. This was a gathering place for Jesus and his disciples. We read this place mentioned uh, several times uh, in, in the Gospels. This was kind of a rally point. You think like, you know, it's not like they could text one another and say, hey, I'll meet, meet you up here later on, right? They, this was a, a gathering spot. Anytime they came to the Passover festival, they would rally at some point in the day at the Garden of Gethsemane. That's how they found each other. And so it's, it's no surprise at all that he's back at the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is exactly where Judas would know to look for Jesus. This is exactly how he would know where to find Jesus specifically here in this upcoming passage in which Judas is going to betray Jesus. And we're going to get to that next week. So in this moment, Jesus knows what's coming. He's at a place where he knows Judas is going to come find him. He could bail, he could run, but he knows that his hour has come. That's, that's a theme that we don't get here in Mark's gospel, that we get in John's gospel. You know, that, that you're reading through John's gospel, and you'll see from time to time, well, the hour had not come yet. The hour had not come yet. And then you get to later in John's gospel, oh, the hour has come now. And so we see that here in this moment that Jesus says, remove this hour from me. He knows this hour was coming, but he's praying for it to be taken away from him. So Jesus obviously knew that Judas was on his way, and it says that he... My soul is very sorrowful even to death. This is a hard sentence to translate into our language. It's, it's way more intense than what we read it. Uh, it, it. Jesus is so full of dread in this moment. He's so full of fear in this moment. He's anxious about what's going to happen next, even though he knows God is sovereign over all of it. That tension between God's sovereignty and and humanity is, is really at work in this passage. And you and I live in that same tension. He knows what it's like. Jesus is like emotionally, he's just, he's wincing because he's on the tracks and the train is coming. He's wincing. God, please remove this cup from me. So he's, he's here expressing these feelings and he's full of, of, of of anxiety, right? And so what does, he, what does he teach his disciples to do? What does he teach us to do when we're worried? Well, he teaches us to pray. That's exactly what he does. He takes Peter, James, and John, and they go to pray. These are the, these are the three disciples that probably objected the most when they were told they were, they were all going to fall away. We know Peter emphatically objected to that, but I bet you John, James and John were right behind him. There's no way, no way, not going to be us. Jesus invites them further into the garden in this more intimate time of prayer, and his prayer is astounding. This is like one of the most informative prayers in, in the entire Bible. It's so short, but yet it teaches us so much. You, you could just do sermon after sermon on this one prayer. I did want to draw a few things out. Just the posture of Jesus, it's so important for us to see that when we think about our prayer life and how we're supposed to pray. Jesus looking for relief in this moment in which he was so stressed. Where did he find it? He found it on the ground. He just threw himself on the ground praying. He fell to the ground and prayed. It's not that we have to pray on the ground. That's not the point. 
but his posture teaches us about what posture we're supposed to take into prayer, right? This prayer is to express this deep dependency on the Father. We should pray like that. We're to be wholly dependent upon God when we go to him in prayer. So do we pray that way? Do you pray that way? Or is prayer just something, oh, I got to pray today. I didn't pray today. I got to hurry up and work in some prayer. And we pray so that it's part of the routine and we didn't skip that part of the routine. You know, we get stuck in a rut like that where, pray, where prayer becomes mindless. Prayer becomes something that we do in the wrong posture. And it's important that when we pray, we pray in the right posture. We're expressing a humble dependence upon God. Like when you pray, do you feel relief after you pray? If you don't feel that relief, are you expressing the dependence that you're supposed to express? I mean, Jesus, he found that relief. Sometimes we go into prayer, we don't find that relief because our heart's just not in the right space. For Jesus, it was falling on the ground. Sometimes we don't get that relief because we're not throwing ourselves metaphorically before God, right? In whatever way we should be doing that. The second thing I want to draw out about this prayer, I mean, just the fact that Jesus asked, remove this cup from me. That cup is in reference to the wrath of God. Remember, he didn't drink that fourth cup at, at Passover just moments before, but God would have a different cup for him. It was the cup of wrath. And so Jesus is praying for what he wants. Remove this hour from me. Remove this cup from me. I, I don't want this to happen. This is so important to know. Like, Jesus was obedient. He was walking in the right directions, in the right direction and doing the right things. But not always because he, like, wanted to. He wanted to, be, he wanted to obey, but he didn't want to be beaten. He didn't want to be arrested. He didn't want to be betrayed. He didn't want to be crucified on a cross. He was doing those things out of obedience, like, but he was asking in prayer for what he desired. So again, we see that God, God's sovereignty, we see the humanity of Jesus on display here, but it teaches us so much. When you pray, sometimes when I pray, sometimes I don't pray for what I want just because of how improbable it all sounds. I'm a bit of a pessimistic person. I'm a skeptic. I, I share that with you all the time, but there are so many times in which I go to God in prayer and I'm just like, you know what? I'm not even going to bother asking you for that because I just, it just seems so improbable. It's just not going to happen that way. Things are going to go the worst way possible, and I just need to accept that. <laughs> like, you ever pray that way? Or, or not pray that way, right? You, you just don't even pray what you desire because you think there's no point. But what, we, what, we're, what we're taught here in this moment is that Jesus is teaching us, pray for what you desire. I mean, you're going to get an answer for God from God. You should pray for what you, des what you desire, and then you accept the answer. Obviously, the answer can be yes, the answer can be no, the answer could be not now. Jesus is asking God the Father, will you remove this cup from me? I don't want to be here on the tracks when this train is coming. I, remove it from me. And God the Father says no. One of the hardest things to do in prayer is to accept no as an answer. We want yes to all of our desires. How can Jesus accept this? How, how can anyone in prayer accept no as an answer? Well, do you realize who you're talking to? When you're expressing this holy dependence upon God the Father, do you know who you're talking to? When you're told no, you can accept it because of who God is. For the same reason in which my kids are going to accept no for me when I tell them no because I'm their dad, right? Well, it, uh, why, why? 
because I said so. <laughs> and eventually, you've all been there as parents, right? You're going to accept that as an answer because that's my answer. And that's who I, I'm your parent. And you're my kid. And we're going to do what I say in this scenario, right? No means no. Well, and your kids can, they can accept that. And they learn to accept that because they trust you. So they accept that. Now, Jesus is able to accept the answer no from the Father because he knows who he's talking to. He's talking to Abba, Father. Not just the Father, not just our Father, but he's saying, my Father. That's what's happening here. We see Abba, Father. Now, okay, we don't get carried away with this. I know it's, uh, sometimes I, when I read through... Uh, commentaries. Most of them are written by Greek scholars. And so if you want to drive a Greek scholar insane, if you just want to mess with them and drive them insane, you will go wild with this Abba word that's in here. And so it's often the case that pastors will preach this and they'll say Abba was like this kitty name for God, this pet name that Jesus had for the Father. Like, you know, Papa, or daddy, and so when we pray, we need to actually refer to God as daddy or papa, and I've known people that actually pray like that. I've heard pastors teach that, and I've known people that pray from the pulpit, and they refer to God the Father as papa. I knew someone who, when they would lead, lead worship and they would go into prayer, they, they would say, daddy, papa, and they start praying, and it was the most distracting thing in the whole world. Like, you know, every, I was in being the youth pastor and stuff like that in those moments, I would always tell, you know, I'm always shushing the kids, like, quit laughing. Yes, that is funny, but stop it. You know, uh, it, when they would pray like that, it, it just came across as irreverent, is, is really what that did. And um, it is irreverent. That's not what Jesus was doing here. This is not some pet name for God. This is not uh, daddy. Uh, it's, it's, it's saying my father. So, you know, we think of when Jesus taught us to pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? When he taught us to pray our, our father, that was very normal. That was very accepted. And so Jesus is now praying alone to God the father, and he is referring to him as my father. Just like you and I, we pray corporately to God. We speak to our father. And privately when we speak to God, oh, my Lord, oh, my God, Jesus, my Savior. There's, there's a more intimate connection there when we're praying by ourselves. That's what's happening. So Jesus doesn't even say Father twice here. Abba is the Aramaic word. Father is the Greek word. So he's, this is what Mark does all throughout the Gospel of Mark. From time to time, he leaves what Jesus says in Aramaic because that's how he would have said it, and then he translates for his Greek readers. But he wants to, in this moment, to make sure they see that Aramaic word, Abba, and then he translates the word Father. So he doesn't say Father, Father. He's saying, my Father. He's referring to God as his Father. This, he's expressing this personal relationship that he has as the son to his father so do you pray like that again this is something that can get lost in our prayers when you pray do you feel that intimate relationship with God when you pray are you, are you praying to God that's out there somewhere or are you praying to your God the creator of the universe that is your God 
Are you praying to Lord, or are you praying to your Lord? Are you praying to your Savior? This personal relationship aspect needs to come through in our prayer time. Are you praying with this awareness, this acknowledgement that this creator of the universe knows every little detail of your life. The hairs on your head are numbered. There's nothing he doesn't know. When you go to him in prayer, he knows every single fact that has led up to that request. He knows every single thing that will happen after it. He sees the beginning and the end. That's how intimately he knows every little detail of your life. He knows them better than you. You don't know the number of hairs on your head. You just know, like in my case, there's fewer now than what there were. But you don't know every detail like that. He does. That's who you're praying to. That's your father. I know my kids better than they know themselves. How much more does my father know about me than what I know about me? And so when you're aware of who you're talking to, you can accept the answer no. If that's who you're praying to, and he tells you no, you can trust. You can express trust in that moment. Oh, okay, I can accept no, because obviously there's something I don't know here. And so it's with that understanding, with that intimate connection to the Father, that Jesus is able to accept the answer no. He's able to trust God, and he says this, yet not what I will, but what you will. What a profound lesson that is when it comes to our prayer time. You know, prayer, it, it is, it is, prayer is about asking what we want. It's just not about getting everything that we want. You see the difference there? It, it's about presenting our desires to God, but it's not about getting them all. It's about aligning our will to the will of the Father. So if you're fed up in prayer because you're not getting the results that you want, you're supposed to say to yourself, do you know who you're talking to? Right? Does he know more about this situation than I do? Well, obviously he does. His answer is always going to be better than our answer. It's so often that we're prone to thinking we know more than him. That This is so easy, God. Just fix this. Just do this and everything will be fine. Just do it exactly like how I say. How can we possibly have that posture towards God, the creator and sustainer of the universe created the circulatory system, but I think I know better, right? How, how dare we take that posture with God, thinking that we can manipulate him? It's so foolish. When we get into that posture, we're just revealing what a low view of God we have. It's embarrassing. When you try to manipulate God, it will exhaust you. It will stress you out, and you will fall away. Read what happens next here in 37 through 42. Let's see what uh, that self-inflated view does for Peter, James, and John. In 37 it says, And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not have watched, could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going 
See, my betrayer is at hand. So here, the self-proclaimed faithful, we see where that attitude got them. The people who said, we're never going to deny you. We're never going to fall away. I can't believe you'd say that about us. Where does that posture get them? It gets them to nap time. Right? Did they stay alert? No. Or did they, did they express this holy dependence upon God as Jesus was doing? No. They don't even make it an hour. He has to come back and wake them up repeatedly. And I think this moment, oh, this moment is so soothing to me as a skeptic. It's so soothing to me as a doubter. Because I think this moment, it, it's kind of like a microcosm of the Christian experience to me. It, at this moment, it encapsulates how, how the life of a believer tends to play out. We're, we're so committed, aren't we? We love to say how committed we are. We'll sign the commitment card. We'll, we'll do everything to, to convince ourselves how committed we are. We're downright passionate about it and defensive of it. I'm a Christian. This is who I am. I'm taking the narrow path. Yep, that's me. Where's that get us? Just as soon as we've made these public uh, commitments to God, just as soon as we gain some self-confidence in our relationship with God, that's when the wheels start to shake, the car starts to rattle a little bit, temptations surround us, and we can't say no to all of it. We start to wonder if we're a Christian at all. Is my, is my Christian faith going to make it? I don't know. How, I, I thought I was committed. Am I committed? You know, I, when I look at my track record, it really makes me doubt. I don't just say that as a part of my sermon. I, I struggle with doubt. And when I'm struggling with doubt, it's because I'm looking at my past life. How am I doing there? Well, at times, not so well. At times, I'm pretty skeptical of this belief that I cling to. Well, man, when I look at my life, I, am I as much of a believer as I tend to think that I am or say that I am? Am I going to make it? When I get to the end of my life, am I still going to be a believer? Ten years from now, five years from now? I mean, the truth of it is, as Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I can't seem to pull it off day by day. Can you? We're fools if we think we can. Even the, the apostle Paul in Romans, he says it best, our favorite verse from Romans. Well, at least it's mine. I have the desire to do what is right, Paul says, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. When I read that in, in the Romans, I'm just like, yes, yes, Paul, thank you for saying that out loud. And then he comes to this conclusion at the end of that chapter 7. He says, wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? What am I going to do about it? I can't get it right. And he, he says the answer, though, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how I'm going to keep faithing. It's because it's not me that I have faith in. It's not my ability to keep on doing good that I'm hoping in. It's Jesus. It's through him. I mean, if I, when I start thinking, how, how am I going to make it five more years? How am I going to make it five more months? How am I going to make it five more days? How am I going to make it five more minutes? The only way we're going to endure is if we go to Jesus in those moments. You're going to come to that headspace. If you haven't gone there yet, you're going you're to be there at times with your walk with Christ. And if you keep thinking about you in those moments... You're going to keep falling further and further and further away. You're going to be full of more and more and more doubt. If you combat your doubt with your works, it's counterproductive. But in those moments, if you run to the cross, if you go to Jesus, if you look at his faithfulness, 
That's how you're going to endure. Jesus is our Savior. He saves us even from ourselves. What a relief. That's the message of the Bible. Man, the sin in this world is terrible. The sin in my own life, oh, he's our Savior. He saves us from our own sin. The, the best description in the New Testament of Jesus when it comes to faith, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's what Hebrews says. In Hebrews 12, he's the author and the perfecter of your faith. So the author of Hebrews is writing to those Jews, those Jews who are full of doubt, they're full of insecurities, they're worried how things are going to play out, are we going to make it, we're being persecuted, what's going on? Here's what he tells them, here's how he instructs them. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Who, is the, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The perfecter of your faith. When you deep dive on that word, as I love to do, it means finisher, completer. So he authors your faith, creates faith, and then he says he is the finisher, the completer, of your faith. So, hear what he's not saying. Here, I'm going to rev you up, start you up, so you can, you can, you know, muster up some faith, get you set in the right direction, and, and then see if you finish. That's not what he's saying. He is the author, the creator of your faith. You can't create. He can. He's God. He creates faith, and he completes faith. He finishes the faith. He's the completer of your faith. So that means he is the sustainer of your faith. And the way that we are sustained is that throughout our lives, as we live in this tension between the sovereignty of God and our own humanity, and we doubt, and we're skeptical, and we, we backslide, we, we, we fall back in our own ways, and we worry if we're going to be the way that he sustains us is his gospel, his truth, that he is our savior, he is our Lord, he is our God. And so we gather here to remember that, and that's what sustains us to the end. So put your faith in his ability. If you're struggling with that doubt and that skepticism today, you may be thinking, man, I'm so ashamed of the way that I that I worry and I'm skeptic and I doubt my, my, my ability and things like that. Well, you know, when you're doubting your own ability, you're skeptical if you're going to make it, guess what? You're starting to think just like a Christian should. That should be a sign you're in the, you're in the right place. You're in the right headspace. You're doubting yourself. You worry that you're, gonna ma- you're not going to make it. Good, because you don't have what it takes to make it. You have to keep going back to Jesus. So the way in which you're skeptical and you doubt yourself that's actually thinking like Paul teaches us to think. That's teaching us like how the author of Hebrews, which maybe Paul <laughs> teaches us how to think. And that's how Jesus shows us how to think. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he just goes to the Father in this moment in which he's so stressed out, he knows this falls under the sovereignty of God. And, and we got to go to that same place too right now in a time of communion. So... If you're doubting, if you're skeptical of yourself, hey, good. Now take those worries and those anxieties to the cross. That's where Jesus is, and that's who our Savior is. Let's pray. Lord, 
again, I thank you for this incredible moment in the Gospel of Mark. Lord, it's so often the case that we relate so much to Peter. We don't like to admit it. Well, we like to admit we're like Peter in the, in, in the times in which he is shining. Uh, we don't like to admit we're like Peter in the times in which he's failing. But Lord, we're so thankful that we get to see this part of Peter so that we can understand ourselves better. I'm thankful that when Mark was writing down Peter's account of this gospel, Peter made it a point to say, here, let me tell you about me and how I messed up and how I thought wrongly and how I had misplaced confidence in myself. Let me tell you all about it. Lord, you tell us those things so that we can be corrected and equipped to live the Christian life. And Lord, we see your faithfulness in the garden, Lord. Even when we're not faithful, you are perfectly faithful, perfectly faithful to sustain us and complete our faith to the end. Lord, help us to remember those truths at this time, that we can be strengthened in what we believe and encouraged today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we ask these things. Mm -hmm.